Hi, everyone. We wanted to do this little conversation about different denominations of Judaism as part of our Beginner's Judaism course. So for those of you who are part of the Beginner's Judaism course, this is really going to help provide some kind of context for you. Before we get started with this conversation, I think it's really important to say that this is, doesn't mean that there's different divisions within Judaism. We believe as a whole that labels are for shirts and not for people. People should not be labeled or boxed in by what they believe or who they are. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew, and that's final. But what we're providing, and I think Rabbi Yoshi can give us a little bit of what we're providing is a context, because so many people are used to people being boxed in by certain denominations. So I would say that today, the this generation, younger generation, they don't define themselves that way. It's, it's less and less common to hear people defining themselves that way. Yet, historically, and especially, I'm not just saying historically thousands of years, but historically over the past few hundred years, it's become something that was more mainstream to define uh, our Judaism by different denominations. So I think that's why it's important. Yeah, I think there's also an important thing uh, when you're learning about Judaism, like even learning from us. It's important to contextualize what the source for that is and what the ideology behind it is. So when I talk and when you talk, Rabbi, you know, where we're talking from and where we're getting our information from and, you know, how we see things and, you know, where that comes from. And if you look up an article on the Internet or if you talk to this person or watch this video and the first thing you want to check is, okay, just understand, like, if this person is talking about Judaism, you know, what is their denomination? So the point is, like, where does that come from? What's their ideology? Where do they get their information from? Who are they representing ideologically? I think that's important, too. Yeah, exactly. Information. And, and we have to also know that we are um, Hasidic slash Orthodox trained rabbis. If this video was being done by a reform rabbi, probably you'd be getting a different perspective. That's saying even though we have our bias, I would like to try to be as open-minded as possible in this conversation to try to allow people to get the facts the way that we're going to present them and they can decide for themselves instead of us, though we're biased. And, and we'll just spell out our bias right now is that we believe that a halachic Jew is someone who is either born of a Jewish mother or converts through an Orthodox baked in. So that's our bias. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if bias is the right word, but yeah, well, you know, let's explain the history behind the denominations, then it'll be a lot clearer what we, you know, what, the, what we mean by bias here, because bias can have a negative thing. I don't know if it's a negative thing. It's just understanding where things come from and also how old they are. Yeah, I think, I think that's... Is, you know, the age of these ideologies is important too. Right. So, so let's get started. Uh, Jews are spread out over the corners of the world. There are Jewish communities really in every corner of the world. I know Chabad is in a, over 100 countries. So you can imagine if Chabad is there, there are Jews there. You have Jews in France, in Australia, in Argentina, in South Africa, in America. Most people think the Jews just live in big cities. There are Jews that are maybe the only one in an entire town. There are Jews that are living in the middle of Montana and Wyoming. Rural Thailand. <laughs> exactly. Rural Thailand. And so ever since the destruction of the temple, and we're talking about almost 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people have been dispersed. During the times of the temple, people were more common to, Jew, Jewish people were more common to be closer to the temple because they wanted to be able to walk to the temple at least three times a year for the uh, for the triannual gatherings on the holidays of Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. But once there was no temple and there was no really uh, mainstay of Judaism in Jerusalem because of the disbursement and because of the destruction, things changed. There were Jews that kind of moved 
towards the west and Jews that move towards the east. So let's talk about Ashkenazi and Sephardi as, let's say, two different denominations, as the most common denominations. Mm -hmm. The descendants of the Jews who, until around, I would say, 1900, lived anywhere from northwest Europe, like France and Germany, to eastern Europe, like Russia, uh, Ukraine, Lithuania, they were called Ashkenazi or Ashkenazim. Majority of the Jews of the world, because so the there were so many Jews, especially pre-World War II, pre-Holocaust, there were so many Jews that were in Poland and Russia and Germany and France. Majority of the Jews of the world are Ashkenazim. Though I believe more recently, that number seems to be changing. And there are more Jew, there are there are more before maybe it was a smaller faction, but the, the Sephardic, which we'll talk about in a second, those Jews are really um, proliferating and becoming uh, much stronger as a, as a Jewish population. Sephardic mm-hmm. Jews or Sephardi Jews are descendants originally of Jews who lived in Spain until around the 15th century. After the expulsion from Spain, which started in 1492, and then, well, it was even a little before that, but around that time, Jews traveled to North Africa, to Italy, to Turkey, to the Ottoman Empire, and then back to the Middle East. And many Jews started out in those areas, never having traveled as far as Spain to begin with. For example, there were an unbroken chain of Jewish people living in the Holy Land, living in Israel for 2,000 years. Even though there wasn't a state of Israel, the Jewish people never really entirely left Israel. There was always a small number of Jews living there. These Jews living in these countries of Spain, North Africa, Morocco, uh, uh, Tunisia, all these, uh, and then and then the Middle East, right? There were Syrian Jews and, and, and Iranian Jews until... Until 1948, these were these were huge Jewish communities. Obviously, as a result of 1948, a lot of Jews were were dispersed, and uh, Israel uh, ended up absorbing a lot of them. But other countries as well absorbed a lot of those Jews from the Middle Eastern countries. These are yeah. all Sephardic Jews. Yeah. Well, just to clarify, I think that from if they're from the Middle East, I think the correct word they use now to differentiate is Mizrahi, which means Eastern. So uh, I think that Sephardi really came to be identified with North Africa, and uh, Mizrahi is more somebody from the Middle East. And then you know I think even Persian is its own category in a way. They 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 uh, identify as Persian or Parsi or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's like its own category in a way. And there's some other minor categories. Also, you know, the, uh, just when it comes to geography, there are a lot of countries where Sephardim you know, cities and countries where there were communities of both Spartan and Ashkenazim, like Amsterdam, France, you know, yes. there was like, and they were very different. There was like the Spartan community and the Ashkenazi community in the same country or in the same city. And they were like, they had, you know, behaved differently. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and I think it's very important to be able to make those differentiations. So we just heard differentiations of even within that, you know, those kind of uh Middle Eastern and 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 North African communities, you know, Sephardi versus Mizrahi. And this is uh again, you know, we're going into the various nuances of different communities, but this is this is very important. 
Yeah. And, and and you'll like, find don't, all don't don't call an Algerian a Moroccan and don't call a Moroccan an Algerian. Yes. Very important. And the same thing with the Persian. Don't call a Persian a Moroccan or a, or a Moroccan a Persian. You know, or Iraqi Iraq and Iran. Like That's right. Or Lebanese. The Lebanese Jews, they need to be lived on their own as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But these, these Sephardim primarily interact with Muslims, especially African and Arab Muslims. Yeah. Today, much of their culture, I would say the music, the language, uh, the liturgical, the uh, melodies, the food, the festivals, the customs, they're all based on those cultures. You'll have m- majority of Moroccan Jews are having hennas at their wedding, which a henna is really a more of an Arabic or, or Muslim tradition. But they uh, absorb that because of the live the place that they lived. Yeah. And likewise for Ashkenazi Jews with European right. culture. That's right. So and then you're going to find like a lot of potatoes and onions in the Ashkenazi tradition because that's, right. that's all they had. So. The state of Israel, for example, while it was founded by Ashkenazi Jews, more than half of Israelis have always been Sephardim. Yeah. There's also been mistrust between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. You know, some some Ashkenazim used, used to say that the Sephardim ruined Israel and vice versa. Yeah, I'm there, thinking there, that there was some racism. Yeah, in the good old days. Over time. As the world has changed, I would say that things have gotten a little better on that, on that level. Yeah. Like I just did a bar mitzvah this past week for the child of an intermarriage, an Ashkenazi and a Sephardi. <laughs> Very common in Montreal because of right. our a lot of we have a big Moroccan population, and yeah, it's very interesting how that works. So you have a lot of kids who have both. And I would say, by and large, aside for the cultural differences. When it comes to ideology and religious values, there's not much of a difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim. I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, I think that the, the European Enlightenment influence on Ashkenazi uh, Jews left a lot more of this like kind of denomination idea. Like you said, mm. it's a bit, a bit related to Christianity, you know, the denomination um, kind of thing, like the ideology, the denomination, you know, the Protestants, the Catholics, all that. So. And your ism is important. What's your ism? You know, what's your right. philosophy? Well, and so, I think that's what I really wanted to get to. Whereas the Sephardic Jews were not as uh, uh, affected by all of these different factions. You're not going to find reform in, in Sephardic Jewry. It doesn't exist. Yeah, they did. Well, they on their own didn't. They didn't develop that on their own. Although... Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was just reading about this. Like Algeria, for example, was like much more French, much more kind of colonized in that way and, and very French. So like the Algerian Jews were considered to be like more modern amongst the Spartan. You know, they weren't like quite, it's to be quite as traditional. So yeah, I just learned that about that in the past few weeks. Yeah, but modern wasn't reforming anything. It was just more yeah. of their practice, modern and their practice. Yeah, still yeah. A, a, an authentic old school Torah based version of practice. Yeah, they didn't create a new ideology. That's right. Yeah, and I think that's important to, to mention. So now let's get into other factions which are more prominent in the Eastern European or Ashkenazi mm-hmm. world. And that is so let's start with Orthodox. You, you maybe have heard the term Orthodox Jew, and you probably think of a man wearing a uh, a long beard and and a black coat and with long side locks. We don't have the side locks. No, we talk no. about that maybe later on. You know, mm-hmm. different factions within Hasidic yeah. Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally, that's what you, people look at. If they look at Orthodox Judaism, they say, "Oh, the, these two people who are talking, <laughs> this must be Orthodox Judaism privilege talking right now." Mm-hmm. But in reality, there are dozens of different styles within what we're going to call Jewish Orthodoxy. And each of them have a different culture, a different educational philosophy. They have different leadership models. They have different sets of policies. Some of them wear black hats and coats, but many others will call themselves modern Orthodox, which means I guess they would wear more modern dress. And so what do they have to that's, yeah, that's so important. so that's that's important. What they have in common is Orthodox Jews 
accept the Torah as the word of God. So even if there's a cultural difference between, let's say, one who wears a strimal, which are those black fur hats worn by some Orthodox Jews, and maybe some Orthodox Jew who wears jeans and a T-shirt, it would be very difficult for people to discern the difference between their religious beliefs and observances. They're going to be following the Torah the way it was given to Moses at Sinai over 3,000 years ago. They're going to be doing mitzvahs. They're going to be keeping Shabbat and kosher. They're going to be doing Judaism in the more traditional sense. Yeah, I think there's a second, though, very important point that has to go along with that. It's not just that the written Torah, the way we have it, was given by God. That's not the only point, because there are other groups that we haven't really mentioned. So going back 2,000 years ago to the Sadducees, and then the Karaites, and then, you know, there's a whole bunch of different versions of this. But basically, people who believe that the, you know, the written Bible, the Torah that we have is the word of God. And that the only way that we can interpret it is we have to figure out on our own what it means, right? So they believe that what what differentiates Orthodox Judaism is not just the belief in the uh, divine source of the Torah, of the written Torah, but also that the way to interpret and understand the written Torah is based on a second Torah, an oral Torah that was passed down from, you know, a system of thought uh, that, that could be used to expand upon and to kind of um, uh, decide new questions that come up and a system of thought that is passed from student to teacher um, and still is, was passed down from student to teacher. Uh, It eventually got a little bit more written down. About 2,000 years ago, they started writing more of it down and now we have lots and lots of books, but it's still called the Oral Torah because you can really only understand it by going to a teacher who's going to teach it to you. You can't learn it from books on your own. And that that system is the authoritative and definitive way to be able to interpret and understand the written Torah, even though that system has many different ways it can go. And it has a lot of divergence in and of itself, but like that, that oral, and this is something we're going to cover for the Judaism for beginners course. We're covering this in the next class. That's that little bit that we didn't do yet. Talking about the Torah is that there's that written Torah and the oral Torah. And that's um, the original name for it, you know, from going back to, uh, you know, the, to- the 2000 years ago, you know, was the Pharisaic Judaism, the Pharisees as opposed to the Sadducees. Um, and these, or, you know, there was a lot of different groups then. So, uh, but that's the main, that's like one of the, those are the two key planks, not just belief in the divine origin of the written Torah, uh, but also the divine origin and the you know, student teacher kind of continuum the chain of uh, that, that that links us back to the past with the oral Torah. Those are the two really main ideologies. Yeah. I think it's important. The the liberal Jews were the, one, the ones who actually called the Orthodox Jews Orthodox. The word Orthodox the means Jesus. correct belief or proper doctrine. And in the 19th century, it was actually looked at as a derogatory term. Yeah. And there's really no spectrum, I would say, within Orthodox. You don't say less Orthodox or more Orthodox. No, I think you could. I mean, yes. I mean, yeah, I know that people use the word ultra-Orthodox, which we'll get to in a second. But the the word stuck. And today, most people would make a distinction between modern Orthodox and, let's say, ultra-Orthodox. So let's take a look at modern Orthodox versus ultra-Orthodox. Now, you're probably, you probably have asked yourself over the years, if you've wondered about Judaism in general, why, um, why all the black? Even us, we, we wear black and white, why all the black? And the simple answer is that it started off as a way of mourning the destruction of the temple 1900 years ago. Then it can, that was the, the philosophy behind it. But today, what you're looking at primarily are people who have adopted the garb of the noblemen of the country or city that they came from or their parents came from when they came to a new world. So let's just say most Jews that were living in Europe at the turn of the century, they were wearing potato sacks. They didn't have money to be able to wear $5,000 fur hats. Yep. 
But when they came to a new world, they wanted to still maintain some of that identity from the old world. And so this became the very traditions that were the Polish uh, Hasidic Jews were wearing the garb of, of the Polish nobleman. Whereas maybe the, the more Russian or Ukrainian Hasidic Jews were going to wear the garb of the more uh, Ukrainian or Russian nobleman. And that's really the, the origin of it. So a lot of it is not even a halachic or, or Torah-based or even Judaism-based to a certain extent. It was part of the way that the Hasidic community felt that on an outer or more ex- external sense, they could maintain their identity from the old country coming to a new country, which a lot of them were very scared of coming to. They had no choice, but because of pogroms and because of persecution, they had to come to a new world. The Jewish people have, you know, one of the great questions that people ask today about the Jews is why is everyone after the Jews? We don't have an answer for that. But the fact is that over many, many centuries, and even more recently, not long ago, we've had to always be traveling. We're always traveling from one country to the next, whatever country will take us in and allow us to be who we are and practice our beliefs and yeah. not bother anyone. Yeah, I would say also, I just want to clarify something you said, that maybe the specifics of the different types of dress don't are not like obviously sourced from the Torah. It comes from the idea of, you know, of wearing the noble clothes of the society that you're in. Um, but uh, the idea that Jews should have a different a way of dressing that makes them unique, is there is source for that. Right? Well, that was like, from the times of, uh, of in Egypt, right? When the yeah, Jews well, that's right, right. A few thousand, which is, the, you know, written down a few thousand years ago about, you know, the, when the Jews were in Egypt, that they had a different way of dressing and that they, they're the fact that they dressed differently differentiated themselves and had different names, et cetera, was important. And that, that actually brings us to the key way to understand the difference between what uh, modern orthodoxy and what they say in English, ultra-orthodoxy, which is a term we don't really like. In Hebrew, it's called Haredi, which means literally, it actually translates in English to Quakers, right? Those who shake <laughs> yeah. from fear of God, right? The Quakers. Exactly. So Haredi Jews, you know, versus modern Orthodox Jews. Um, the key difference is comes down to, uh, obviously, there's some differences in Jewish law about how strict you are about different laws, you, you know, uh, you know, how, 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 Machmir, how do you translate that into English? How, uh, how far you take things, how stringent you are about certain things in Jewish law. But I think the main difference is cultural, that modern orthodoxy says we can keep the laws of, of the Torah, um, but we can also take on a lot of culture and education. So the way we dress and the music we listen to, we can be like very culturally modern and, you know, kind of be like everyone else. So wear the same clothes that everyone around us is wearing, listen to the same music you know watch the same tv shows and at the same time keep a torah way of life so that the culture you know can be modern whereas you know haredim ultra orthodox is more like not only do we keep the torah laws but also our own like culture our our music our way of dressing our our home environment you know all that kind of stuff also needs to be uniquely and jewish and also has to have some walls up that we don't just let you know, modernity into that as well. So I think that's like one of the main differences. And, and I would add also, it was also an ideological difference as that was a way that a lot of the Hasidic and let's say ultra-Orthodox Jews felt coming to a new world that they would have to maintain a certain insular uh, society in order to be able to uh, continue to be Jewish the way they want to be Jewish in the new world. Yeah. Yeah, well, the trauma of the Holocaust and 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 then coming to the new world and and having to deal with life here, which you know was very very different, you know, because in a way the culture here was a lot more welcoming, which ha- had its own challenges. I mean, maybe it is now, maybe it wasn't then. I don't know. I wasn't around then, but um, um, yeah, that's uh, it became an idea of like I think really the trauma of the Holocaust, saying like we really need. We can't trust anyone. We really need to kind of like fence ourselves off a little bit more. So that was the reaction of some uh, of the uh, ultra-Orthodox groups was we need to be more insular um, because the world is not a welcoming place for us. I think it's really important. And, and, and so a lot of what you're seeing today is really a post-Holocaust Judaism. Yeah. I mean, there, the, the aspects of it existed before. I'm not, you're not going to say, oh, it wasn't insular before the Holocaust. It was insular. 
Right. But not, but here, like, yeah, there there was an added kind of like level of protection that's uh, that was added to it, you know, afterwards that made it like even more. Yeah. And and there was also, you know, within the Orthodox world, there's there's also different interpretations of particular laws because the oral law and the oral tradition is so important. I'll give you an example because it's something you can just see right now on the screen if you're watching us. Let's talk about the beard for a second, right? There, there, that interpretation of the beard. So in Leviticus, in the Torah, it says, do not, do not cut the, four, the, the five corners of the face. It says, don't destroy. Don't destroy the five corners of the face. Thank you. Now, there's different interpretations to what that means. Some say that it's don't round off the corners of your beard. Some say don't cut the earlocks. That's probably why you're going to see some that have these long earlocks, because that's what they believe, that, that the hair uh, that grows on the side of the forehead, that is part of the five corners. Some say that it doesn't make sense. It's just saying don't shave. And some say don't shave with an instrument that has a single cutting edge, but you can use a rotary blade shaver. Right. With, That's yeah, why scissors. some right. Orthodox Jews will shave. Yes. Yeah. Using scissors or an electric razor instead of what the Torah called destroying refers to, if you think back a thousand or two thousand years ago or three thousand years ago, a razor was like a straight blade. It was a razor blade like so, but scissors is different. Uh, but then the reason why we have beards now, even though, okay, you know, you can find in Jewish law a lot of ways that one could remove one's beard and not break the rule, technically speaking, right, it becomes a cultural thing, a Kabbalistic thing, right, a spiritual, a mystical thing. We believe in the, uh, you know, in the in the, the, this, the holiness of the beard. And then the way different people, different Hasidic Jews or Orthodox Jews have different types of, you know, payout. So it, as Chabad, we have very short side locks and then different you know uh hasidic jews have different lengths and different styles and then lithuanian ultra-orthodox non-hasidic jews wrap it around their ears and i've seen hungarian tied up under their kippah so those are more cultural and kind of like oh as part of the group that we identify with this is our custom becomes customary but that's uh, where the nuance comes in and that's why i want to just say that they're all right i don't want to confuse you but they're all right Everyone is right. And that's what's beautiful about the nuance of what we're going to call Orthodox Judaism is that each of these interpretations, the people who are following that interpretation, the way they're doing it, they're right. It forms part of like, yeah, it's like each system works on its own. Yeah. Consistent within itself. Yeah. So that goes into Hasidim and Miknagdim. I want to just, just touch on it. I know... We're going to have time to talk on it later, but because we're having this conversation now, um, this is a, a very basic difference today in, let's say, what we're going to call the ultra the ultra orthodox factions. Yeah. Do you, want, do you want me to give the history briefly? Just like talk about. Uh, yeah, just just briefly, sure. Yeah, it's very important. So all these denominations like didn't really exist so much until the Enlightenment, until like the 1700s. What happened in the 1700s? You know, you just had Jews. And if you want to see the way they thought and the way they believed, you can open up um, the diary of Glückel of Hamlin. She was just an ordinary Jewish lady, lived in Germany in the 1600s, and we have her diary, and it's just like life. Is there, an, is there an English translation of that diary? Of course. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing work. Yeah, Glückel of Hamlin is amazing. And it's just like a, a, a window into the real life of, an, of, a, of a Jewish mother or woman, um, you know, in the 1600s in Germany. And it's, you know, before all this happened and they were just Jews, right? And they just, there wasn't, there weren't, there wasn't so much like denominations and different kinds. I mean, there's people, there were, there was Jews and then people who left. If you weren't interested, if you wanted that you become baptized to become a Christian or, or leave or whatever. But like, as far like, you know, you could leave if you wanted to for, for different reasons, but you know, uh, being Jewish was just being Jewish. What happened with the enlightenment is um, the 1700s and that, you know, the Renaissance, you know, things started to shift. So in two ways, first, you, you know, you had a split that happened between um, a new movement of Jews. So people are saying, we're not becoming Christian. We're not, not becoming, you know, nothing. We're not like leaving. We're Jews. 
but were a different kind of Jew, or the Haskalah Jew. Haskalah means enlightenment in Hebrew, the modern. So this is more in like, uh, you know, Western Europe. This is a Western European thing. You had a split off between, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews who kind of kept their Ashkenazi tradition, and then the Enlightenment Jews who started to approach, they still studied religion and the Torah, but from a more modern perspective, and, and they got into science, and then, you know, they started to create their own ways of thinking about things, you know, through the lens of the Enlightenment. And, you know, it was obviously less religious, let's say, but it became, it was a bit more based on, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the new emphasis on, on rational thinking. And, um, you know, they had their own way of doing things. So that happened in Western Europe. Um, and then in Eastern Europe, there was a different kind of split. There was a split between the state of the Jewish people then, which was pretty difficult. So the Jewish people at this time in Eastern Europe, they had just experienced in the 1600s, the Chionitsky massacres, when the Ukrainian uh, peasants rebelled against their Polish overlords. Um, which is a whole history to learn in of itself. The Jewish people were the middlemen. The Jews were, had very strong positions as middlemen for the Polish nobles. And so the, the uh, anger of the, of the Ukrainian peasantry was directed against the Polish nobles, but against their Jewish agents. And so well, a little bit of collateral damage. It was, yeah, I mean, no, it, they were, they were, it wasn't collateral damage. They were targeted directly. Wow. And it was a, it was like, it was kind of like a Holocaust level events, you know, the way it's described and the amount of people who were wiped out. Ukraine was very Jewish. It was almost, Ukraine was basically built by Jews, you know, going back a thousand years. That's a whole other history. But um, so what, that was really, really hard for the Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe was obviously quite poor. That was hard. And um, then there started to be this kind of like, so that, with that, that all that created this kind of class system amongst the Jews of Eastern Europe, where you had kind of the wealthy and the elite scholars, the Torah scholars and the wealthy people on top, let's call them the 1%. And then you had the 99% of, you know, the peasant Jews who were very poor and downtrodden, had very difficult lives, were not well educated. And they were just looked down upon, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, and they didn't feel good about themselves. And this, their spiritual leaders were constantly, you know, haranguing them and yelling at them, you have to be better, you know, like there, it was a very negative kind of feel to it. And so that created this, uh, this, um, oh, there's one more, obviously one, one more thing that happened was Shabbatai Tzvi was a messianic pretender, a Jew who a lot of, a lot of Jews in Eastern Europe thought was the Messiah. People oh, sold I mean, when, when you hit rock bottom, is there any, any other way? So people were kind of waiting. They were like, if this yeah. is what the world has come to, there must, must be an answer to it. And the Messiah yeah. has always been, the Mashiach has always been this, this hope, especially exactly. in times of despair. Exactly. So then this, the perfect timing, the Shabbatai Tzvi came along as the false Messiah, and people believed him, and they sold their belongings, and they went to the coast, you know, uh, to, ready to sail off to Israel with Shabbatai Tzvi. And the Turks, you know, didn't like what was going on and they arrested him and they, he ended up converting to Islam. Some converted to Islam with him and they created their own religion, which is a whole interesting story. The Shabbateans, um, that's a whole other story. But most, obviously, 99.9% .9 of the Jews were like, ah, we, we were had and that was, you know, it's false. Right. But that really devastated people. Well, like, there was a real disillusionment. Yeah, a disillusionment and yeah, just and a lot of, it was, it was hard. So, yeah, he turned out to be a fraud and he did all kinds of weird things. I'm not going to, you know, that's another yeah. whole class for itself. But all, all of that put together, put, you know, you know, in the, in the early, you know, late 1600s and early 1700s, the Jews of Eastern Europe were in a really rough shape. So um, the, the, there, there was this kind of secret society of mystics who were trying to make things better and, um, you know, kind of holy people and mystics who were trying to kind of, raise the spirits of the simple people. And one of them came, you know, revealed himself in public as a, as a, as a, you know, a mystic and a healer and et cetera, the Baal Shem Tov. And he kind of gathered students around and kind of was the, was the nucleus of a new movement within Eastern European uh, Judaism. And the new movement <coughs> was also, you know, obviously let's say Orthodox, you know, but they had a different emphasis. 
it was positivity. It was singing. It was looking at the joy, joy. Yeah. Looking at the simple peasant Jew and his simple uh, Psalms that he was saying and his simple prayers is beautiful and the most precious thing to God. And like, so, you know, described in, you know, the modern, uh, you know, analysis as a populist, you know, folk healer kind of character. There's a thousand stories or more about his amazing miracles, etc. But he really created a very, very serious movement. And his students had students who had students and they created all these dynasties of a different kind of Jewish leader, a very dynamic, a very uplifting kind of Jewish leader that became known as a Rebbe. A Rebbe. And they became these dynasties of different cities, and today have these all these different Hasidim in Montreal and Outremont, or in Borough Park in New York. Big groups that you might have heard of, you know, um, and uh, smaller groups that you might have never heard of. But there are hundreds and hundreds of tiny little groups that you might have not have heard of. Many of them were just completely wiped out in the Holocaust. But the bigger groups in Montreal are Bells and Satmar and Vizhnitz, and they're all named after the town or the city that the Rebbe lived in. And they had, you know, the biggest one is Satmar with. 50,000, 100,000 people. It's quite big. I don't know, something very big. But before the war, I mean, in Poland and Ukraine and all these places, you know, uh, White Russia, you know, Belarus, Lithuania, there were massive Hasidic communities, uh, each with their own leaders. And we are, so we are Chabad Lubavitch Hasidim, that's us. Um, So Lubavitch is a town in, uh, they call it White Russia, I guess. It's part of Russia today, I think. And uh, it's kind of Ukraine-Russia area, that part of the world. And uh, it was the movement was based there for a long time. Chabad means something else, but um, it's, it's part of the name now. And uh, yeah, it's a little bit different than the other Hasidic groups for in quite a few different ways because it developed more in like Lithuania and Ukraine. And so it has a different approach. Chabad means intellectual. It's a bit more of an intellectual approach. To, um, Whereas to many of the other groups were more what they call chagat, which were more emotional approaches. Yeah, yeah. Other Hasidic groups are more have a more emotional connection to to uh, to the way they practice, and um, so there's a lot of differences. So um, and uh, and today, one of the practical differences also that Chabad became very focused on outreach. Chabad Lubavitch has centers all over the world and really focused on outreach. And has you know, and then other Hasidic groups were a little bit more insular, although that's really starting to change with technology and also with the influence of Chabad on them. That they're seeing that wow, you know, you can we, we can be a spiritual light to the world. We don't have to hide. So uh, and, and and the world doesn't have to change us. We can stay who we are and still affect the world. Um, so yeah, that's I guess that's a good I think that I want to just talk about the Meknagdim, which were literally Hasidim. That admit the Meknagdim called the Hasidim the Hasidim, and the Hasidim called them the Meknagdim. They were basically yeah. Well, first explain what it is, right? Yes. The, the, the people who didn't become Hasidic in Eastern Europe wanted to keep things the way they were. They saw the Baal Shem Tov and all the they saw these charismatic leaders, and they're like, oh, more false messiahs, right? Mm-hmm. More charlatans, and they made up all these crazy lies, and they. Uh, about them, it became like rumor mill, and and basically, like they said, these they're not orthodox anymore. They're 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 apostates. They're you know they're they're just it's wrong. You know they're there's it's they 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 didn't like this. so the, you know they kept their focus and they kept their emphasis on on the uh, non mystical you know kind of Torah study and, and really focused on that and uh, you know a different way of approaching you know a little bit more of a harsh and negative kind of way of approaching spirituality i would say <laughs> Try not well, to be well the funny thing is they're called a miknagid which means an opposer yeah the opponent right the the opponent. opponents to, they call themselves that as the opponents to the hasidic movement and and so now if they don't really it's not really called that anymore now they're known as litvish which is lithuanian or also called yeshivish so it's those are eastern european um, non-Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox. And Let's... they have big communities in Lakewood, they have a big community in Montreal in the area around Devimi. Um, I, think, I think it's important. Let's just spend some time here and talk about in the Eastern European, again, the Ashkenazi world, these breakaway denominations where you had a lot of groups of people, especially starting uh, in the mid-1800s in Germany, with the reform movement, it's not called reformed, but rather reform. Yeah. 
there, uh, from he there was a, a great uh, a scholar. I mean, he was known as a great scholar, though uh, he was very controversial. Moses Mendelssohn, who started Allah. Right. So you 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 spoke about him a bit. Yeah, well, that's the Western what we mentioned before. The so the Enlightenment Jews of Western Europe, um, they you know coalesced into a movement around you know I guess. The one who, you know, Moses Mendelssohn was an important figure in that. He, he himself was religious and orthodox, uh, personally. Um, he's quoted famously for saying, you know, uh, God is love. And he was a great composer. His, his music is well known and his kid. And, you know, but the interesting thing. So, you know, and he, he, what he started with was they wanted to change the synagogue um, and have the prayers be and things be done in german instead of hebrew so like so he wrote um an excellent german translation of the torah and they had german books they had like an organ with music a little bit more churchy you know the organ right uh like in the church and and they brought in these different things they just changed the service a little bit but they didn't change the laws so much and but it, it quickly developed um, and so that became the reform movement and it quickly developed into this, you know, where there was a lot more changes and to the point that they started changing the ideology. So the ideology of reform, you know, developed over the years, um, but that's where it started, you know, in that, that enlightenment period in the late 17, early 1800s, I suppose. Moses Mendelssohn, all of his children married non-Jews, right? And, and they were not like him anymore. And, you know, that's just a, a symbol for kind of how things changed. Where it wasn't just a change of the language and adding music and changing the culture a little bit, but it really became okay that the Torah itself, we don't necessarily have to do all of the mitzvot anymore, right? That became the focus of Judaism, basically, the way they did it. It was not so much about practice. I mean, this is a little, in a way, it is influenced by Christianity, right? These people were very, very influenced by, by their Christian neighbors. Um, they were a little bit more assimilated. And so the, the ideology became, it doesn't really matter what you do so much. You don't have to keep all the laws perfectly as, you know, it's optional kind of, it's customary. The main thing is to be a monotheist. It's what you believe, you know, which again, you know, it's, uh, has a bit more of a Christian ideology. It's not what you do, it's what you believe. So the focus of reform became, we are monotheists. As long as you believe in God, you're a monotheist, then that's, the focus and then you know the rest is kind of like an intellectual pursuit you can study the torah it's a very interesting intellectual pursuit you can study the music and you can study the grammar and the beauty of hebrew and the poetry and all the jewish culture but it's just a culture like other cultures as long as you know and but we have this monotheistic aspect to us and so it became a way of becoming a little bit more like one's german neighbors and uh that was the direction that it went Today, it's moved into more progressive and, and liberal Judaism. Yeah, absolutely. It's now, it, now, I would say that really, for the most part, reform identifies with progressive causes. So if yeah. there's like a something in the left-wing progressive cause, I find that it's really picked up by the reform movement. Yeah. You know, quite a bit. Again, it becomes ideologically progressive, so it's going to be progressive in a lot of ways. At least it's, it's, uh, it's consistent that way. Yeah. Interesting thing, though, I mean, it's different now, but in those days, you know, Zionism started to develop in that time as well, right, in the 1800s, right. and reform was anti-Zionist in those days, because they wanted to be, you know, we're German, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, but definitely, the reform of today was really shaped by the 1950s and 60s, which was a, a real religious renaissance. People were going to church or on, on, on Sunday, and the Jews were going to church on Saturday. And that was kind of even the way that the synagogue and the service and everything was kind of designed was supposed to be the yeah. Jewish church. Yeah, yeah. That's why they call, that's why they changed the name. It became temple. It wasn't right. the synagogue, the shul, you know, that it became temple, right? Church and you have temple and, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a funny word, right? That we because temple. Well, I'm going to temple. You know, right. I didn't grow up with that word, but that's how it was, right? The reformed temple, and uh, yeah, the service became more. Yeah, it was more similar to that, and uh, yeah, more church like in a way. And um, so yeah, that became. And but those were that was the main in America as opposed to Europe, right? In America, that that was really the main denomination. American Jews were like really identified with. The reform movement and also the conservative movement, right, which we have to mention, 
that yes. popped up as a kind of compromise between. Well, let's talk about conservatives. They Sorry? were called originally were called Masorti, correct? Uh, I don't know if that's an old name. I think that's more in Israeli in Israel that became that. I'm not sure. Uh, I think I think conservative is the original term, especially the English, because it was American um, mm-hmm. that movement, and it was called conservative because it was conservative relative to reform, right? You know, now we you know now conservative means like a religious conservative is. You know, I'm a religious conservative now, right? But it was called the conservative movement because it was differentiating itself, saying we're more conservative than the reform movement. So it was this kind of balancing act uh, between reform and orthodox ideology. So what they did is kind of like they created their own bait deans and they had their own conservative rabbis and they had an approach uh, to Jewish law, which was very orthodox, but they were more willing to challenge and change things. So, for instance, they put together the conservative movement put together. A rabbinic conference and said, now, you know, based on what you know, we have microscopes, we can declare the swordfish kosher. So it's like the whole thing is swordfish kosher. A conservative rabbi will say that a swordfish is kosher, whereas, we, you know, uh, an orthodox rabbi will say it's not. It never right. was. Right. Because in order for a fish to be kosher, it has to have fins and scales. Yeah. And the scales are microscopic. That's right. Something like that. You have to use a microscope to see them. So, then conservatives say, okay, we're making the sort we, we, we based on that, you know, with this modern advance, the sort of vision, just an example. So they put together, you know, their own version, this kind of, of you know, a traditional style, but of, of Jewish law, but, uh, um, you know, more willing to change things. So kind of a compromise between the two. I mean, it, it, it was interesting because conservative Judaism in America really flourished in the 20th century. And it was actually for a long time, the largest Jewish movement in the United States. Yeah, yeah, because people got the tradition they were used to, and they got the more flexibility, and yeah, it was very, you know, there was a period of time where it was very, very popular and successful, although I think that middle-of-the-road approach has really gone downhill. In, in, well, it's, in, it's, it, it seems to be that today, people have gone one way or the other. Right, people good. either want to be like really progressive, which is right. the direction of the reform movement, or they want to go really, you know, really conservative. So they're going to go more orthodox. Yeah. And even a lot of the conservative synagogues themselves have gone one way or the other. Yeah. A lot of them have converted <laughs> to be reform or orthodox. Right. right. Yeah. So, so let's that, take a look at just, just a, a few more uh, uh, groups, the Reconstructionist group. Yeah. So I guess I, I'd call these the modern or the, the postmodern, right? There's a few kind of postmodernists. Uh, groups that you know came later. So you had this fellow. What was his first name? Kaplan. And Mordechai uh, Kaplan. Mordechai Kaplan. Um, and uh, when did he pass away? Uh, he he uh, was a 20th century theologian. I, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to look it up. But yeah. I, it started off with this kind of, with Baruch Spinoza. When oh, you want to say that's the Spinoza? Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, I well because he was the one who said that God is not a separate being, but rather the forces of nature itself. Okay. And I mean, yeah. The Jewish community okay. I mean, was that's... so outraged they excommunicated yeah. him, and they declared. I, I would, I would, I would connect Spinoza more to the kind of the deeper theologies of of the Hasidic movement, uh, if anything. <laughs> you know, they okay, didn't we see can that talk. Way. We can debate this at some point later. We didn't but, see it that way. It's interesting because Mordecai Kaplan saw himself as a student of Spinoza. That's why I think it's interesting to to, mm-hmm. to to note it. Right. I think more in the sense that Spinoza was just considered to be like a divergent thinker, and they and they and he was willing to, you know, suffer and get tossed out of the mainstream for his beliefs. You know, I feel like that's also the way maybe Kaplan saw himself. As right. that's why I call it reconstructionist. Right. We're not just reforming it; we're going to completely reconstruct it. So the main way I understand was actually Kaplan was a conservative rabbi. I'm sure. Yeah. He started off that way, but you know, he developed his own ideology. So the way I understand that ideology, the main difference between reform and reconstructionist is that in reform, yeah, they, they became, yes, the laws of the Torah are flexible. They can change, you know, with time, but we kept, we kept monotheism. We kept the belief system. Reconstructionist. The idea is that you don't have to believe in God. Right, that's why it's reconstructed. the The view of reconstructionists is that we're just a people with a book. You know, we have our own tradition and culture and history, which is beautiful and wonderful. Um, but you don't have to believe any of it. History right. has a vote, but not a veto. Tradition has a vote, but not a veto. Right, 
And so, um, you know, we're just kind of like a people, a culture like any other, and we have a nice, you know, intellectual tradition that you can learn about that's interesting, but you don't have to be a monotheist. You don't have to believe in God uh, to be, you know, considered part of the belief system. It's just kind of like, we just have a beautiful culture. So it became the focus of Reconstructionists became the community, that Judaism is a community, a society, a group of people, and that's really what it's all about. That's like the main emphasis and focus. Right. And even the rabbi, the rabbi isn't seen as like this uh, this patriarchy, so to speak, just like a facilitator, uh, a, a resource more yeah, than, yeah. than a leader. And they yeah. really encourage a lot of lay participation, uh, creative reworking both ritualistically and worship based reworking and so yeah. that really becomes the basis of, of 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 their ideology and philosophy today reconstruct right and that's why it's really postmodernist because it doesn't have a specific viewpoint it's like all the viewpoints are the same right which is the, the idea of postmodernism so uh, let's take a look at uh just two more let's yeah. take a look at the renewal movement yeah yeah, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, right? you you met you met uh, Zalman. Schachter. I was actually friendly with uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter, who later called himself Zalman Shachter Shalomi. Uh, right. uh, so the Jewish Renewal Movement sprang from the philosophers uh, for the philosophies of Martin Buber and uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel. They mm -hmm. called themselves originally the Neo Hasidism. Yeah, that's a big thing now. Neo Hasidic is very big. Yeah, but they that's were big. the original Neo Hasidic. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it was Zaman Schechter, uh, perhaps with his friend Shlomo Karabach, though it's debatable if he actually helped him start the renewal movement, though, though they were friendly when Zaman did start the new renewal movements. Right. Well, and I think it's important just, to point out their common origins, right? They were both Chabad Lubavitch Hasidic Jews of great stature and great learning. Shlomo Karabach, who I guess really mostly remained Orthodox and did some interesting, you know, did some things that were different, but. Uh, you know, he's kind of a little more accepted in the Orthodox world, although there's a lot of controversy now about that. So without going there, but Zalman Shachter really set his own path, right? Really with a, with a completely separate and, uh, you know, a, 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 its own movement, its own ideology. Yeah, and the, the idea behind the movement was that people can draw wisdom from a variety of diverse sources. Hasidism, Kabbalah, fem uh, feminism, the prophets environmentalism, the writings right. of ancient rabbis. He just took everything from everywhere and kind of put it together. Right. Almost like stripping down the abstract ideology of the Kabbalah, of the mysticism, and just kind of applying it everywhere and then being really flexible with the rituals. So instead of going to the mikvah, the ritual bath, that's very complicated to build, we'll go to a hot tub and have a spiritual experience there. Like that's right. an example of that, you know, and, and you know, use the physical experience of that as the, as the spiritual experience. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very hands on approach to Jewish worship. They're very into physical using their hands and their bodies to to worship. Uh, you know, yeah, right. Somatic. Right. Which which also kind of comes from a lot of Hasidic Jews do that. It's also something traced back. So that's why it's called neo Hasidic, because it's kind of like taking certain things from, uh, you know, philosophies and, and, and practices of the Hasidic movement, which are very spiritual and kind of like, you know, yeah, taking away some of the, you know, ritual elements of it and transforming them. And so that's what neo-Hasidic means. And now there's just many neo-Hasidic movements. I think later on, what made it different than the neo-Hasidic movement is that they started embracing a lot of diverse spiritual lessons, like Eastern philosophy. Right. Uh, uh, Eastern meditative practices became a real important part of the renewal movement. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Spiritual they, ecology. The Jubus, as we say. Exactly. So there was really it was really an answer, which it was an answer for a lot of people who were looking for that kind of Buddhist uh, 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 feeling. Many had gone off to India, especially in the in the sixties and seventies, and so mm -hmm. Zalman had an answer for them by kind of incorporating a lot of that into the renewal movement. That's right. Let's do one more. Mm -hmm. And I think by, I think, uh, so we've covered uh, orthodoxy and the different factions within orthodoxy, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, renewal. Let's do secular humanistic. 
Okay, <laughs> go ahead. I don't know. Humanistic is really important today because um, I think a lot of people identify with it. So what do you do if you feel Jewish? If you like Jewish holidays, if you like Jewish food and music and a, a sense of ethics or, or social involvement, or, or you like Jewish comedy, but you're not into the idea of God. You don't want to, you want to be culturally Jewish, but not into God. So, so how, do you, how do you differentiate between that and Reconstructionism? Which I'll tell you. So it comes from this, set, so the secular humanist Jewish movement was established by Rabbi Sherwin Wine in the 60s. And it was based on the humanist ideals of rational and critical thinking, as well as developing the depths and dimensions of both individuals and communities. So what they're doing is they're focusing less on the ideology, but more on the culture, on the civilization, on, on celebrating Jewish heritage as a way of finding meaning in life, minimizing the role of God, minimizing the role of cosmic forces. They actually define a Jew as pretty much anyone who's, who identifies with the history and culture of the Jewish people. And they have there's no theist, theistic language, there's no liturgy, it's just identification. So I think for a lot of people in North America who want to celebrate Jewish holidays or they want to have a bar or bat mitzvah or they want to just celebrate tradition and they don't ascribe, let's say, to a non-religious interpretation that perhaps the renewal or reconstructionist or reform or conservative movement to ascribe to, um, they can find a place there because they're very involved in social action. Um, you know, okay. I mean, it's probably not by chance that the first secular humanist rabbi that was ever ordained was in 1999 was a woman. Right, okay. Right, first one. Well, that's yeah. a long uh, period. Yeah, but I'm saying, I, I, again, it's so funny because, like, to to you and I, we look at this and we say, I mean, what does it matter? Why do you have to be part of a group of people in order to to to, to be, you know, part of culture and and uh, and and ecology? You know, just do your thing and be a Jew and 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 the end of it. So why do you have to say, oh, I am now a secular humanist? But for some people, they they there is also that sense of belonging. They want to belong to something. Right. I mean, I, I will I do want to kind of approach a little bit on this, but not too much. This is um this is not Judaism at all. There are people and 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 if you ask them, they're going to tell you they're very Jewish. Sometimes they'll even say they're more Jewish than Jews. That is um, um, the Messianic Judaism or what they call Messianic Judaism. This is not Judaism. It's 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 Christianity. It's a belief in, in, in JC. Um, even if the person happens to be Jewish by birth and they're involved with this, this is at all not even, I wouldn't even put this in the faction. Of Judaism, I, I think. Well, I think what puts this in a different category, and there, this controversy came up, I think, when I think Mike Pence, you know, and he brought in a rabbi for yes. something, right? Whether during Trump's presidency and Mike Pence was vice president, and he brought in this rabbi, and it was a messianic rabbi, and everybody flipped out, like, what's the big deal? It's just one another denomination, right? And so the difference why pretty much everybody across the board flipped out about that, all like all the Jewish movements, everybody flipped out about that. Because what differentiates that movement is that it's it's deceptive. It's that it's the the motive behind it is really this motive of certain elements of Christianity who want to convert Jewish people. And that's like a very big goal for them, and so they develop this version of Christianity where you know they realize that the big you know thing preventing Jews from becoming Christian and believing in JC was this idea that oh not being jewish anymore was like a big deal so they said no problem you can be jewish and it's very jewish to believe in this to believe in you know uh, that jc is the messiah and the, whatever it is and that's why it's messianic because the focus is not on on him as like a god or god's son the focus is on him as a messiah which is a different element of christianity which jews would find more palatable because we have right messianic judaism oh we believe in the messiah right right 
And it, but the whole thing is quite deceptive. It's kind of like really, it's really Christianity. And so that's why it's really panned because everybody else, you know, all the other Jewish movements are upfront about what they are, right? They're, this is right. what we are. And it's upfront. Then it's coming from a genuine place of trying to figure out how to be Jewish. Whereas this is like people who are really Christian who are trying to create something that's kind of like a, a, a bit of a trap for people. It's funny because as you were talking, I'm thinking there's not many things that all of the different factions of Judaism we just spoke about would agree on. But one thing they would all agree on is that Messianic Judaism is not Judaism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's, yeah. And that's because of the deceptiveness that's built into it and that, that it kind of comes from the outside. It doesn't really come, it doesn't really come from the Jewish community. It's something built as a, a tool to convert Jews outside. So, yeah, you know, that's our opinion. <laughs> So I think I think we've done a, a pretty uh, a pretty good job as far as as far as I can see of going through different factions, uh, different parts, different denominations. I'm sure there's some things we left out. And if you have any other questions, uh, we're always here. So that was our little piece on a Jewish identity and different Jewish uh, uh, denominations. And we hope that this uh, helped you become a little more knowledgeable in this area. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.